This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have Extra Extra, a 1942 episode of Yarns for Yanks. This series told popular stories for an audience of the fighting men of the U.S. and their allies. The series was produced by the Special Service Division of the U.S. War Department and aired over the Armed Forces Radio Network. This episode is hosted by Spencer Tracy. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And don't forget, you can find past episodes as well as links to some of the books featured in our podcast at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yarns for Yanks. Frank Graham. We have another guest yarn spinner on this edition of Yarns for Yanks. He's one of your favorite stars, and he's here to tell you another favorite American story. The yarn is Robert E. Sherwood's Extra Extra, and our storyteller is the great star of stage, screen, and radio, and an all-American guy, Spencer Tracy. Hi, fellas. Here's a story that's always been one of my favorites. I hope you guys down in the Caribbean and you guys in the South Pacific and up in Iceland and over in North Africa will like it too. Wherever you happen to be, if you're in the mood for a Cracker Jack yarn, here's Robert E. Sherwood's Extra Extra. the street below came the most terrifying of sounds. The full-chested roar of two men shouting, Extra! Extra! Through the rainy night. Extra! Extra! Mr. Whidden, reading his evening paper, it was the home edition published at noon containing no news whatsoever, wondered what the trouble was. He could gather nothing from the ominous shouts that assailed his ears. 
But there was an ominous note in their voices, the warning of dark calamity, the grim suggestion of wars and plagues. Where do they get those men with voices like that? And what do they do between extras, he thought. Mrs. Whidden emerged from the kitchen, whither she had retired to bathe the supper dishes. There's an extra out, Roy, she announced. So I hear. She walked over to the window, opened it, and thrust her head out into the rain. In the street, five stories below, she could see the two news vendors. Extra! Extra! Mrs. Whidden turned from the window. Something must have happened. There was an overtone of complaint in her remark that Mr. Whidden recognized only too well. It was a tone that always suggested unwelcome activity on Mr. Whidden's part. He wished that she would come right out and say, Go down the paper. But she never did. She always prefaced her commands with a series of whiny insinuations. Well, I wonder what it was, she asked, as though expecting her husband to know. Oh, it's nothing, I guess. Those extras never amount to anything. Mrs. Whitten turned again to the window. Well, something awful must have happened, she observed. And the counterpoint of complaint was even more pronounced. Mr. Whitten shifted uneasily in his chair, the one comfortable chair in the flat. The chair which he himself had bought for his own occupancy and about which there had been so much argument. He knew what was coming. He didn't want to move and walk down and up four flights of stairs for the sake of some information that would not affect his life in the remotest degree. Don't you intend to find out? asked Mrs. Whitten, and it was evident that she had reached the snappy stage. Her husband knew that if he didn't go down and buy that damn paper, he would provide fuel for an irritation that would burn well into the night. Nevertheless, that chair was so comfortable... And the weather was so disagreeable, and the stairs were such a climb. I guess I won't go down, Emmy. Those, those extras are always fakes anyway. And besides, if it is anything important, we'll find out about it in the morning paper. The roars of the men shouting, Extra! Extra! reverberated through the street, beating with determined violence against the sheer walls of the walk-up apartment houses, shuddering through the open windows of the Whitten's living rooms, jarring the fringed shade of the reading lamp, the souvenirs on the bookshelves, the tasseled portieres that led into the halls. You're just lazy, Roy Whidden, said Mrs. Whidden. You sit there reading your paper night after night, night after night. She turned as though to an invisible jury to whom she was addressing a fervent plea for recognition of her prolonged martyrdom. Then, with all the dramatic suddenness of an experienced prosecutor, she snapped at the defendant, what do you read, anyway? Answer me that. What do you read? Mr. Whidden knew that the question was purely rhetorical. No answer was expected. You don't read a thing. You just sit there and stare at that fool paper, probably the personal columns. When anything important happens, you don't even care enough to step out into the street and see what it is. How do you know it's important? How do you know it isn't, Mrs. Whidden backfired? How will you ever know anything unless you take the trouble to find out? Mr. Whidden uncrossed his legs and then crossed them again. I suppose you expect me to go down and get that paper, cried Mrs. Whidden, whose voice was now rivaling the news vendors. With all I've got to do, the dishes, the baby's ten o'clock feeding, and... All right, all right, I'll go. I'll walk down the four flights of stairs and get the paper so that your majesty won't have to trouble yourself. There was a fine sarcasm in her tone now. 
Mr. Whitten knew that it was the end. For seven years, this exact scene had been repeating itself over and over again. He knew that now, if he gave in, he did so because of cowardice and not because of any chivalrous motives. He threw his paper down, stood up, and walked into the bedroom to get his coat. Little Conrad was asleep in there, lying on his stomach. <clears throat> his face pressed against the bars of the crib. Over the crib hung a colored photograph of the Taj Mahal, a lovely white building that Mr. Whitten has always wanted to see. He also wanted to see a lot of places that he had read about in books. He was thinking about these places and wondering whether little Conrad would ever see them when his wife's voice rasped at him irritatingly from the next room. Are you going or will I have to go? Must I drop everything? I'm going, dear. Well, hurry. Those men are a block away by now. Mr. Whitten put on his coat, looked at little Conrad and at the Taj Mahal, and then started down the stairs. There were four flights of them, and it was raining hard outside. Twelve years later, Mrs. Whitten, now Mrs. Birchall, sat sewing on the front porch of a pleasant house in a respectable suburb. And do you mean to tell me that you never heard from him? asked Mrs. Lent, who was also sewing. Not a word, replied Mrs. Birchall, without rancor. Not a word in 12 years. He used to send money sometimes to the bank, but they'd never tell me where it came from. Ain't you ever sort of afraid he might show up, asked Mrs. Lent. Not him. And if he did, what of it? Fred could kick him out with one hand tied behind his back. Fred Birchall's something Roy Whitten never was, a real man. She sewed in silence for a while. Of course, I am a little worried about Conrad. He thinks his father's dead. You see, we wanted to spare him from knowing about the divorce and all that. We couldn't have the boy starting out in life with his father's disgrace on his shoulders. Shortly thereafter, Mrs. Lent went on her way, and Mrs. Birchall stepped into the house to see whether the maid was doing anything constructive. She found her son, Conrad, curled up in a chair, reading some book. You sitting in the house reading on a fine day like this. Go on out into the fresh air and shake your limbs. But, Mother, go on out, I tell you. Can't you try to be a real boy for a change? But this book's exciting, the boy said. I'll bet. Anything in print is better than fresh air and outdoor exercise, I suppose. You're just like your... Can't you ever stop reading for one instant? I declare. One of these days you'll turn into a book. Now you set that book down and go out of this house this instant. Conrad went out into the front yard and started with no enthusiasm to bounce an old golf ball up and down upon the concrete walk that led from the front porch to the gate. He was thus engaged when a strange man appeared in the street, stopping before the gate to look for the number which wasn't there. Hey, Sonny, is this Mrs. Birchall's house? Yes, it is. You want to see her? The stairs man was short, slight, and none too formidable looking. Although he was obviously a representative of the lower classes, possibly a tramp, Conrad was not in the least afraid of him. He had a rather friendly expression, a peaceful expression, as though he bore ill will to no one. What's your name, the man inquired. My name's Conrad, Conrad Whidden. Conrad wondered why the man stared at him so. I used to know your mother before I went to sea. Oh, you're a sailor. Conrad was obviously impressed. Where have you been? Oh, all over. I, I just came from Marseille. Gosh, I'd like to go there. I've been reading about it in a book. It's a book called The Arrow of Gold. The man smiled. You were named after the man who wrote that book. I never knew that, the boy said. No, I guess not. Your mother didn't know either. Just then, Mrs. Birchall appeared on the front steps, attracted perhaps by the 
suspicious cessation of the sharp pops that the golf ball had been making on the concrete walk. When she saw her former husband leaning on the gate, her first thought was this. Well, of all things, and here I was talking about him to Adele Lent not ten minutes ago. Then she realized with sudden horror that her son was actually in conversation with his father. She wondered whether that fool Roy had said anything. Conrad, you come here this instant. Conrad ambled up the concrete walk. How many times do I have to tell you not to talk to every strange man that comes around? He's a sailor, Mother. Oh, a sailor, is he? Somehow or other that annoyed Mrs. Burchill. Will you just chase yourself around to the back and don't let me catch you talking to any tramps or sailors either? Conrad cast one glance toward the man who had come from Marseille and then disappeared from view behind the house. Mrs. Burchall walked elegantly down to the front gate and confronted Roy Whitten. So you're a sailor, are you? She surveyed him with deliberate satisfaction. You look to me like a common tramp. I always knew you'd never get anywhere. I guess you were right, Am. He smiled as he said this. Mrs. Burchall was irritated by the easy good humor of his tone, by the calm confidence in his eyes. Why did you do it? I don't know. It was a rainy night, and I heard a foghorn out in the river. So you left me for a foghorn? Yes, I knew you'd be all right. Your people had money, and I sent some. A lot you sent. Well, I guess it wasn't much, but it was all I could scrape together. Well, what are you bumming around here for now? What do you want? Money? Well, you won't get it. Not a nickel. I told Fred Birchall if you ever showed up, he was to kick you right out. And he'd do it, too. I advise you to make yourself scarce before he gets home. Don't worry, I'm going. My ship sails at six. Oh, your ship sails, does it? I'll bet it's a fine ship. She laughed harshly at the mental picture of any ship on which Roy Whidden could obtain employment. How did you ever find out where I live? Oh, I kept track of you through the bank. I knew when you got the divorce and got married again. Well, then, why didn't you leave me alone? Why did you come snooping around here for? Just curiosity. I wanted to see what the boy looks like. Well, you've seen him. Yes, I've seen him. That's all I wanted. He straightened up and started to move away. Well, goodbye, Em. Goodbye. And I hope you enjoy yourself on that ship of yours. He was walking away down the street when suddenly she called to him. Roy! He stopped abruptly in response to that well-remembered and once-familiar summons. There was something I meant to ask you, she said with a hesitancy unusual for the Emmy he knew. What, uh, what was that extra about? He rubbed his none-too-smooth chin and thought for an instant. Let's see, it was something about... No, that was later. I guess I've forgotten. Was it about the World Series, she asked, as though trying desperately hard to prompt him? The morning papers were full of it. Was it about that? He smiled with relief. Of course, that was it. The Red Sox won. Thank you, Spence. Fellas, that was the yarn Extra Extra by Robert E. Sherwood. Spun for you by the famous star of stage, screen, and radio, Spencer Tracy. Listen for more in this series of Yarns for Yanks. Your favorite stories as told by your favorite stars. And I'll be around to spin a yarn or two myself. This is Frank Graham speaking. So long.
Signs for Yanks was produced for you fighting men of the United Nations by the Special Service Division of the War Department of the United States of America. Mm-hmm.